Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the promise of Scripture that describes you as our mighty fortress, our help, our present help in times of trouble. Lord, we ask that you would press upon us the truth of these things in such a way that all the cares of this world and our schedules for the week just seem to stay away and on pause while we look at you through your word and are encouraged. Lord, I ask that you do that for us today, to draw us to yourself as we gather together in your name, on your day, for your glory. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, it's my privilege to greet you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and to welcome you to church and to see your faces, uh, if not those that are gathered at home uh, electronically. You can see mine, I can't see yours, but for this period of time, this is the way we meet and we're glad to do it, we're thankful to do it, and this is the day that the Lord has made, we'll rejoice and be glad in it. I want to begin by looking at one passage of Scripture before we pray and before we look into other passages of Scripture in the message this morning, but this is another psalm, Psalm 119. And we'll be looking at Psalm 65. The title of this morning's message is When Plans Change. And this is an attempt to address the things that we've been living in and among for the past several weeks, even months. And having put some distance behind ourselves and March the 15th, which was the first Sunday that was different from all other Sundays that I think this church has ever experienced That was 140 days ago, and having finished our study through the book of Jonah last week, I'm finally, reluctantly, ready to talk about some things. And that is, better said, to search the scriptures for answers to things that I think we all share. And hopefully this verse, in addition to what has already been read and what has already been sung, and in addition to what will be read, this, this I hope, will be kind of like uh, what we need from time to time, uh, similar to this watch on my hand. Uh, if I leave it laying by itself for about two days, its action will slow and stop. It's one of the automatic type that needs me to move around so it can keep running. And if that happens, I'll not only have to wind it up, but I have to reset it and calibrate it to a standard. And uh, I don't know about you, but I've been in great need of a winding up. <laughs> I've been in need of a recalibration. And to be calibrated to a standard, not my own, but this mighty fortress we've been talking about, singing about. This is verse 65 of Psalm 119. You have dealt well with your servant. O Lord, according to your word, teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we bow again. 
as a prelude to our looking into your word for answers to questions. And we ask that you calibrate us to your truth, to let you be true and every man a liar. Lord, may your word do its work of change in our lives. May we agree that it is the standard by which everything else must be shaped, must be viewed, must be engaged, must be dealt with. Lord, do this for us on this day in, in your house. And Lord, remind us of where we are, and that is at your feet. Make us good students, for we know you're the great teacher. And we ask all this in your precious name. Amen. Well, let's do what I'm always blessed to do and, quite frankly, comfortable doing. When we start talking about things, it's best to start at the beginning, isn't it? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We start there. And shortly after that took place, after God created over the course of six days everything that we know to be, and after having done that each day, at the end of the day, he looked at what he made and he said, this is good. We learn in the subsequent chapters that it didn't stay that way very long. That it was because of the creation in his own image, Adam and Eve and their disobedience against him and the sin that was the result of the disobedience and the death that was result of the disobedience promised as its punishment. We learn in the New Testament it's called the wage of sin. It's death. And then we read a little bit further and it's not long before one son of Adam takes another son of Adam's life and we have our first murderer. You read a little further. You don't have to go far in Genesis 6. And you read how the Lord was actually sorry that He made man because the way it's described is the wickedness of man was such that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was on evil only continually. I don't know how you would describe man's case any worse than that. And other than the contents of an ark with eight men and two of every animal, uh, God blotted the man that he created from the face of the earth that he created as if it was a cosmic reset button. And then not long after that, the descendants of the eight folks in that ark, the descendants of Noah, decided they were going to build this building to make a name for themselves, which was basically a declaration of independence from God and His rule over them. That was the Tower of Babel. And we remember the result of that was Him confounding their languages, right? And having confounded their languages, they grouped up in groups where they could understand each other. And from that point on, history has been known and defined as groups of people, nations, people, with different cultures, different ways they do things, different ways they look. And from then on out, that was the way it has been and it continues to be that way today. Then comes along Abraham which was God's uh, promised father of a multitude. His name didn't fit that, Abram at that point, but it would be later. And no sooner does he get to where he's supposed to be and the crew that he took with him than his nephew Lot leaves for greener pastures and aligns himself with another group. And having done that, 
We've got this dramatic story of all the heartache that came as a result of it and bloodshed to get him back and fire falling from heaven and cities being destroyed. And it's just a very dramatic, interesting story that shows us that what happened in the garden is only gaining speed and traction and getting worse. Then you've got Abraham, whose son is Isaac, whose son is Jacob, whose sons are the 12 tribes of Israel. And if you like to divide Genesis up into chunks, the biggest one is given over to the story of Jacob's son named Joseph. And that's probably the most interesting. We remember all that from Sunday school. Lots of flannel graphs spent on telling that story and a coat of many colors and this boy that was hated by his brothers because of his dreams. And at that point in the story, he had a lot to learn, especially keeping some of that stuff to himself. His brothers didn't want to hear that. They decided to kill him. If it wasn't for one that talked them out of it, that's probably what happened. He was sold into bondage and wound up in Egypt. And there were good days and there were bad days, but before it was all over, he's prime minister and saves the entire known world as we know it in the record of Genesis from a severe famine, including his brothers. That's where it really gets interesting because he's able to reunite with them. And for a period of time, they don't know who he is until he reveals himself to them. And this is what we read the 50th chapter of Genesis at the end as the climactic ending in verse 15. If you know the story, just listen. If you want to make notes, you can look it up and write it down. But when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, Jacob's dead, they say it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because of the evil they did to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. This is... This speaks to us because this is kind of where we live. Much like we ended the service last week from the, the page out of Titus. Where we once were evil and broken and hating one another and hated by one another. Until the mercy of God came and saved us. By the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Come a long way from Genesis 1. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of of God? Do, Do I get to revenge you or avenge you? Verse 20, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly with them. That's about the end of that act and the grand narrative of God's work with his people in the book of Genesis. Now, there's the word evil a lot in that passage. And there's a lot of the use of that word previous to this last chapter of Genesis. 
And what he's talking about is obviously the wrong that one man or group of men uh, did against another man or group of men. But that's not the only type of evil that we see in Genesis so far. That would be called moral evil. But there's also natural evil. And it's, it's always been that way. There's moral evil where we do things against one another. And then there's natural evil. And that's, that's the, the famine here that, that Joseph was instrumental in helping the people survive through. He mentions that. But what we learn by the time we get to chapter 50 of Genesis is that both moral evil and natural evil are traced back to the curse in Eden and linked together. As part of the world's curse. If you pay attention to the curse. It had specifics for the serpent. had specifics for Eve. had specifics for Adam. And had specifics for the dirt. So they're both linked. And if we needed a, a, a New Testament occurrence of the linkage between moral and natural evil. That the same thing that causes our warring against one another causes hurricanes to come up the coast and we've got one on the way now in Luke 13 some people asked Jesus a question there was some present that at that very time who told him about Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices that was true and that's moral evil and he answered them do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the Galileans because they suffered this way Jesus expects them to say no and then he adds this, no, so he agrees, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And what he's saying is the problem is not with what they did and the punishment being just. The problem is you've all sinned against God. We know that from Genesis. And as a result, death is what's in play and someone's going to have to take that away. And that would be Jesus. But then he goes on. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all those who lived in Jerusalem? The answer is no, they couldn't help it. That's a building that fell down. That's an accident. But he says the same thing. No, not their fault. But I tell you, unless you repent of the sins against the God that made you, you're going to perish the same way. The world's broken. It's not working like it's supposed to. And it hasn't since sin entered the picture. So let's add another one. We'll, we'll, we'll gather a case here and then we'll pull out some thoughts from it and at least get started answering some of these questions that we've been living with for weeks and weeks. You remember Job, right? Some people, the only, only thing they know Job about is uh, the poor is Job's turkey thing. But Job was the man that seems to be the, the candidate for this grand wager between God and the devil. And Job seemed to be the one fit for the test case as to whether or not there was a person on the planet who would serve God just because he was God and no other reason. He's, to read the beginning of it, you almost wonder how, how could God put a man through this. But he loses everything. And, he, and, and that is at the hands of both moral and natural evil. Part of Job's family was killed by raiding bands of marauders that slaughtered them. Part of his family were killed by a wind that knocked the house down on them. Or a fire that came and burned them up. 
But here's what Job said is in, in response to this natural and moral evil. This is uh, Job 1, 20 and 22, 21 and 22. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and, and did what? Worshipped. And he said, Naked came I from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. And then the next chapter, before his friends show up, and we have uh, a couple dozen chapters almost worth of their discussion about what happened. The good part's the beginning and the end, and they talk about it all in the middle. Right before that happens in chapter 2, the only part of Job's family that he didn't lose was his wife. And this is hard to read. She asked him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. Just be done with it. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? As if you're supposed to get both. And all this Job did not sin with his lips. So here's another case for the rift in the world we live in manifests itself in evil. Natural or moral is traced back to human disobedience. So we've got enough to start moving forward with just some thoughts. This world is fractured. We've made the case. But I'm going to make the argument that the Bible explains this. Explains why very little in this world works as it's supposed to. Explains what evil is, if not its origin. It explains what it is. And it also explains what we're supposed to do with it. How we're, we're supposed to res respond to it. How we're supposed to understand its purpose. The Bible actually tells us evil has a purpose. It's not an accident. It's not pointless. It's not random. If you take both those men's responses to evil, Joseph's and Job's, what did Joseph say? You meant it for evil against me. God meant it for good. We could take a whole series to untangle that theologically. But I'm going to trust it. At least you'll, if you don't buy that, You'll at least hang on to it for the rest of the time we're together. And then with Job here, the Lord gave, the Lord took away. Blessed be his name. The Lord gave to me in grace and he took away violently what he'd given me, but he's still in charge. And somehow all of that fits under his sovereign hand. So these men acknowledge the sovereignty of God over the evil that plagued their lives. So here's two things, if you're writing notes. First, the scriptures establish that all evil, moral and natural, is traced back to an act of human disobedience. We read that in Genesis 1. And second, it seems God's men believe that it's used by His sovereign hand for His purpose. Not purposeless, not random, not an accident. So our question is, well, what do we do with it? Because we've got a good pile of it in our laps these days. This year has been has seen no shortage of both moral and natural evil. 
we're living under a global pandemic. That's a natural evil. We don't even really know what we're dealing with. Most viruses we need to be normal. This one ruins what we think is normal. It's, it's, a, it's a mutation. But we understand that that is a natural part of a world that's broken. It wouldn't be natural if no sin was in the picture. But since all evil has gone back to the garden where man broke his relationship with the Lord and was cursed accordingly, then a virus is actually natural. It's a natural evil. And then I'll add on top of that, we're, we're witnessing the social disintegration of, of our culture as, as if we're back to the Tower of Babel. Um, as if united together in independence against God, we just need to be spread out some more. That's horrible. But that's what we're looking at. And then on top of all that, as if we needed more... There's this political agitation that seems to just stir and stir and stir and stir. And so the result of all this is a certain amount of uh, anxiety and a certain amount of fear. That it's just, it won't go away. We wake up with it every morning. If we have a good day and get away from it, we'll find a television or a newspaper or someone else and it, 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 won't, it won't go away. So you've got people that are afraid to go out because of fear of what it might do to their health to catch a virus. You've got people who are afraid to stay in of what it might do to their finances or their freedoms or their liberties. Both of them have a point. You've got people who are afraid not to speak up because stuff's going on that people should hear about and it's wrong and it should be corrected. But then on the other side of that, you've got people who are afraid to say anything because of fear they might be misunderstood, fear they might offend, fear they don't really know what they know yet. So it's probably better just to keep their mouth closed until they do because this is all new to them. They didn't know these things. Both of them have a point. Or you've got people who are afraid that uh, government has overreached its boundaries. They've done things they were not given the liberty to do. Or you're afraid on the other side. No, they haven't done enough. And now's the time to do it before it's bad. Both of them might have an actual point. But the problem with all of those is that either side, and there's more than one or two or three, there's probably thousands of sides, we're worried the other side is getting the advantage or gaining the ground and we're losing it and before it's over we'll, we'll be missing what we had. That compounds the whole thing. That's where I think we live right now. And the question is, what do we do with it? We, we've got an idea of where it comes from. It's evil. And that's the fault of our mother and father, Adam and Eve. But what do people on the other side of the cross do about this? Where Jesus corrected what went wrong in the garden to take us back to the garden and unrestricted access to the Father having paid our sin debt by taking it on Himself. Well, one more passage. And this one we'll look at a little bit more clearly. Spend 
few more minutes in it than we have these others. Turn to Acts 4. This is on our side of the cross. It's closer to our situation. The book of Acts records what happened after the life of Christ, after his three years on the earth, after his death, after his burial, after his resurrection. And the first chapter of Acts is the ascension of Christ and figuring out what to do to replace Judas. Chapter 2 is where the Holy Spirit's given. Peter preaches. 3,000 people are saved. The Word of God's going out. God's bringing people in as they're saved. Chapter 3 is a miracle where a lame man is walking and leaping and praising the Lord. He didn't get any money out of it because the apostles didn't have silver or gold. They gave him something a lot better. And as a result of this, we see what happens in chapter 4. Because up until then, it seems like a great sequel to the Gospels. But things begin to, to fall apart as far as plans. That's what I titled this message, When Plans Change. What does the Bible tell us to do when our plans change? And what we're going to learn is that God has His plans. And they're different than our plans. But what you've got in chapter 4 is a miracle prompts a sermon. Because of the miracle, people get upset and Peter preaches again. And then the sermon that Peter preaches ignites a conflict because they want to know how he did what he did. How are you healing somebody? And then this conflict results in clarity where the disciples know exactly what to do with what happens to them. Let me read this to you. This is Acts chapter 4. I'm going to skip a few pieces here and there, but I'll, I'll try to give you the verse numbers so you can stay on track if you've got it open to Acts 4. As they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. Here's the cool part, verse 4. But many of those who'd heard the word believed. And the number of the men came to about 5,000. So add another 2,000 to the 3,000. Verse 5, on the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander. This is the whole crew responsible for the death of Christ just days earlier. The whole high priestly family, it says. Verse 7, and they had set them in the midst... This is Peter and the apostles. They inquired, by what power, by what name did you do this? Then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit, and he would have to be to say this to the men who killed Jesus and have him in custody. Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. If you skip down to verse 13, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that he'd been with Jesus. Jesus had rubbed off on them. Verse 14, but seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition when they commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? Verse 18, 
So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Here's Peter's famous rebuttal. But Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge for we cannot bespeak what we've seen and heard. And there comes a time where that's what you've got to do. And when they'd further threatened them, so they weren't done with them yet, but after they further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. Verse 23, When they released them, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God, meaning they had a prayer meeting. Here's how they pray. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of your father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. This is Psalm 2, by the way, and also part of the Psalm David read earlier. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against the anointed. They're praying through Scripture. And they're likening what was told to them in Psalm 2 to what had happened to them just days prior. Look at verse 27. For truly, in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Pause right there. This is moral evil. They didn't just kill a man, they killed the son of man. But the men that were left are chalking this up to the predetermined counsel of God who delivered up his son on purpose. So here again, they're taking their evil and they're basically taking it and putting it in the hands of God. Verse 29, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So, Let's boil it down. The disciples of Jesus are aware of growing hostility. It's clear we're able to read it right here in black and white. A very real and present danger. And not to forget that the one in whose name they're preaching and have been told not to preach anymore was the one that this group of people had killed in recent days. They get together with their friends, their brothers and sisters in Christ, and they pray. And the way they pray is where we're going to learn, and what they pray, uh, we're going to learn even more. So, what they pray has a lot to do with what we believe. We've been talking about this on Wednesdays with uh, the Lord's Prayer, how you will pray what you believe. You want to know a man's theology, don't ask him theological questions, just stick around long enough to hear him pray. And you will know. And that's what we know right here. They start by saying, Sovereign Lord who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. 
You're in trouble. You need some help. You address God. Does it make a difference that He's the one that made this place? That's part of the story where we began, right? He made it all. Does that matter? Does that, does that give you a boost in confidence in your prayer that you're not talking to uh, a professor or a lawyer or a banker or a doctor or a philosopher or a counselor? You're talking to the Creator. He made it all. That's where they start with the God who's bigger than everything especially what's going on in Jerusalem and what might happen the next day when they wake up. It makes a big difference when we're losing heart, discouraged. Prayer always begins there. No man ever prays unless his concept of God lines up with the concept of the Bible as he's described and revealed himself to be. The God that made everything. But then, in verse 25, he's also the God who speaks not only did he make everything, but he thought enough to tell us how he did it and who he was. Who through the mouth of your father David, your servant, said, by the Holy Spirit, inspiration of Scripture, why did the Gentiles rage? So he's actually telling us what to expect. The world is going to rage against its creator. They're going to find marvelous, creative ways to destroy themselves. It's exactly what is said here. So it's not only the God who made everything, but the God who told us what to expect. And if God hadn't spoken, we certainly wouldn't be here today. There wouldn't be anything to talk about. And then that's not all. If you look there in verse 27, for truly in this city they were gathered together against you. We, we talked about this. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place that involved the brutal murder of your son. So... He's the God who decides what happens. That's who they're praying to. The God who made it all, the God who spoke to reveal himself, and the God who decides ultimately everything that ever happens. That's who they're addressing. So to address that God, boy, we really would like to know what they're going to ask, wouldn't we? Verse 29, and now, having said that, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants. Again, Paul's right there. Suppose you didn't know what it, we've already read it. That's part of uh, the drama of preaching. Sometimes you have to give it away before you, you get it. But what would we say they should say? What would we expect them to say? Grant that our enemies would be defeated Grant that the persecution would cease. Um, you know, if you don't like it, the devil can, what, sit on the tack? The song we used to sing is... And it, it's absurd. What do they ask? They ask to continue to speak the word with all boldness. That's how they spent their check. If prayer is a check from heaven, that's how they spend it. Lord, help us to do what you called us to do, even though that's what got us in trouble, but help us to do it right and do it well. To speak your gospel with boldness. Now, we're in a situation, and we have prayer meetings weekly. And 
sometimes our prayer requests are indictments on ourselves. If you check them, and it's not this church, it's every church. It's usually hospital procedures, ailments, sicknesses. We usually keep the, the, the real stuff to ourselves. The fact that my relationship to my wife or husband is a mess. The fact that I have a problem with another brother that I will not speak about. Or I've done this, that, or that. Keep that to yourself. Either way, what do we spend our check on? What have we been spending our check on? Does it have anything to do with what they asked for? I mean, if it's our turn, uh, Lord, who made the heavens and the earth, who revealed yourself in Scripture, who decides ultimately everything that happens, Lord, would you please give us a vaccine? We need a vaccine. But is a vaccine more important than the gospel of Jesus Christ? All I'm daring to say right now is that to speak the word of God with boldness might be up here and the vaccine might be maybe here but it shouldn't be here right now with some folks it's either nah that's where I get off the train I don't like a God who would rather me be speaking with boldness than healthy and well and wise and all the other stuff that I thought being a Christian was supposed to guarantee you you look all through the Acts of the Apostles, you're not going to find them praying for a bailout ever. But that's pretty much what our prayers look like if you analyze them. That's, that's what we do. That's how Christians... And we're supposed to do that. We're supposed to... There's no such thing as a need we shouldn't carry to the Lord. This is all about a, a recalibration. This isn't... Uh, doing away with all the things we know to be true elsewhere in Scripture. This is just what you do when things really just get all messed up. Maybe the prayer would be, Lord, put America back the way we liked it. It's been too good a message so far to start acting like some of our prayers would have to do with elections. Look back at what they said. Because it's not that they're not in the presence of the Lord ignoring the fact that they've been threatened. Look at verse 29. And now, Lord, Lord, look upon, look after, worry about their threats. But grant us the ability to continue to speak your word with all boldness. So how about... Lord in heaven, who made it and speaks to us through your word. Lord, look on that virus and look on racism and look on government. But find us faithful if we don't do anything else. Lord, find us faithful. Lord, if it's a year from now, will we still have the faithfulness to look at each other on Zoom again? Or sit six feet apart again? Or put on a mask to love our brother? Or whatever we've got to do, but may we be about the things in this earth, common graces, 
prayer, Bible study, and the ordinances that we know for sure the world is not going to do if we don't do it. Lord, make sure we do that. And we'll trust you with this other stuff. And it might be that this is for the purpose of teaching us to get our head in the game you died for. Because it's been other places. Because you've blessed us so much we forgot who you are. I think that might be where these men are. I'm not so sure. Most of them were killed for what they said. And that's another thing. What we might learn over the next few weeks is that it would be more profitable for us to encourage ourselves in the Lord and prepare ourselves for a time where the government's not really telling us what to wear on our face, but what we can say out of our mouth. Because I'm pretty sure that's coming. And it's probably going to happen in my lifetime and in my ministry. And that is where I'll have to decide where what Peter and John said, that's the line. I, 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 I can't listen anymore. I can meet outside if I have to. We can meet electronically. You haven't told us we can't meet. You've just told us how to meet. So we're still good. We've still got options and we'll still submit. But if you tell me that I can't say what's in here, then that's, that, that's where it'll get interesting. And that's where we'll need to change up the prayer. Lord, I'll need some boldness. I'll be afraid to death, but I'll, I'll have to have some, some boldness. Because that's why you died. Paul would say in Ephesians, praying all the time in the Spirit, prayers and supplications, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me. Here's what Paul's praying for. That words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I'm an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak it. Boy, if I, if I needed anything, it's help with with doing this as I ought to do it. Their conviction was that God was sovereign over the affairs of all men. All they could do was give their problem back to God. You ever thought about that type of thinking? Because it's it's the pattern. Natural evil, moral evil, it's all under God's sovereign hand. So when evil comes our way, it had to pass through God. First, Because he decides. So it's almost like saying, Lord, I don't like this. I'm not going to take it. When what they're doing is saying, Lord, we'll just give this back to you knowing it came from your hand to start with. It's an insanely mature prayer. Their request was, Lord, help us to do better doing the very thing that got us into trouble. Because that's what you've called us to do. To continue to speak your word with all boldness. It wasn't anything new. They're just continuing it. That's the most boring thing about being Christians and going to church. Because the message hasn't changed for 2,000 years. And it won't change for another 2,000 years if it doesn't come first. It's the same message. Over and over and over and over and over again. And we're not at liberty to make it interesting by mixing it up and stretching it in different places. Just so we can have fun doing it. But it's enough. And it's what we need right now. One of my favorites is from Timothy, or from Paul to his understudy, Timothy, because Timothy had problems. He's so nervous his guts were messed up. That's why I prescribed him, you know, 
the stuff you can't even have in communion. What he said in 2 Timothy 4.5, But you keep your head in all situations. Endure hardships. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. Just do it, son. That's why you're here. Spirit-filled, bold proclamation of Jesus. So that's what they prayed for. And look at verse 31. This is what happened. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. Um, I was given tools in seminary to figure out what stuff means. I don't know what that means. Shaken like an earthquake? I don't know. Probably. But any time I've ever had anything to do with a shaking, it wasn't pleasant. Uh, shake me awake. Shake me in an accident. Um, shake me with just the horror of some bad news. Um, shaken with the awe of who I'm dealing with and who I've sinned against. All of that stuff is, is, is being... Awakened to something you were asleep having to do with, right? So, I don't know what this meant, but that's what happened. When they prayed for that, something shook them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, which we are if we're God's children, and continued that gloriously boring word to speak the word of God with boldness. So here's, here's your, your, your final assessment here. We're finite people with finite time and finite resources. We couldn't be at two places once if we wanted to, though this culture screams for that necessity. We must remain committed to the ordinary means of grace. The proclamation and teaching of the Word of God, prayer, and the ordinances. It's what the church is given that the rest of the world doesn't have. You know, some of the better businesses in America do just that one thing really good. What does the church do that nobody else can do? That. And that's what we're called to do. So we continue to pray for boldness, faithfulness, to keep on keeping on, preparing for a day where things will be worse. And the reason why I think they'll be worse, even though I think I'm about as optimistic as most people, or as I'd like to be. And the fields are white to harvest. That's what Jesus said. But he did say, they will hate you. Because they hated me. And though he didn't promise anybody that they wouldn't die, in fact, he told them they would. He just promised that they'd never be separated from him. In eternity. So, this is what we do. We prepare. This is what we do when plans change. And usually when we're upset that our plans change, those plans didn't have as much to do with God's plan as we thought it might have. When our plans fit closer to His plans, there's less of an adjustment when our plans change. We're going to conclude this service with a hymn, Tis So Sweet to Trust in Jesus. I'm pretty sure you all know it. And that seemed fitting to consider as a benediction of sorts. 
just to continue to ask Him to trust His Word. So let me pray for you. We'll sing, and then we'll be dismissed. If you'll keep your seat, the ushers will come dismiss you by your row. And we'll thank the Lord for our time together. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. We'd be lost without it. It's the only thing that gives us hope. And Lord, we've only just put our troubles in a box today. There's still some sorting to do with those troubles. and What's right for us to do and say and how we're supposed to act. Give us the wisdom and knowledge to sort through those in the weeks to come. But Lord, if we don't do anything else, give us boldness to proclaim your goodness, your gospel, your grace to continue. When plans change, Lord, help us to continue. We thank you and we ask all this in your precious name. Amen.